I heard this cute story about uh, Sunday school class where there was a teacher trying to teach her kids about uh, the parable of the Good, Good Samaritan. And she said that uh, she wanted the kids to really understand the story. So she said, what do you think you would do if you saw someone laying on the side of the road, sitting there beaten up and bloody, you know, and the kids are like thinking about it, you know, with wide eyes. And then finally the one little girl breaks the silence. She says, I think I'd throw up, you know. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes when the scriptures hit our reality, the reactions are a little bit different. We have to process it personally, you know. And uh, today we're talking about, uh, in Acts 2, the, the spiritual practices we're going through, the ancient future practices. This one today is fellowship. And fellowship brings to mind relationships and community. And sometimes when you look at the scriptures and you see how beautiful community can be, you can have kind of this ideal a picture in your mind of, uh, yeah, like community can be great and fellowship can be wonderful. And then all of a sudden, you know, you realize like relationships can be great at the same time. They're also the source of all of our problems, you know. It reminds me of this uh, uh, email that I got and I had an attachment on it. I asked Dave and uh, Matt to put the uh, the uh, attachments up here. This is a wonderful old couple, been together for forever. Whenever I get mad at you, you never seem to get upset. How do you manage to control your temper? I just go and clean the toilet. Okay, how does that help? Well, I use your toothbrush. <laughs> wow, man, community, it's wonderful and terrible. And, oh, you know, it's funny, you know, we, we, there are these things in Scripture that are incredible, and when we look at what, the, what is afforded to us in the kingdom of God, it's amazing. And then when we realize when it hits our world and when it hits the reality of who we are, that we just totally have an ability to completely destroy God's whole purpose and plan for the beauty, you know? And when we look at this passage of Scripture, we're looking at the blueprint of the church, you know, and God's design for the church. And it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And when we look at those four things, they're great things, you know? The Word, the fellowship, the, the ordinances, and the prayer, they're great, great things. And then you realize, what does it actually take to engage in those things appropriately? Because if you engage the Word of God, but, you don't, but it's not alive, then it's just dead and hard, and it's, it, it doesn't work for me. If, if I go into fellowship, and, I, and I'm not at the right frame of mind, then people are going to be scrubbing toilets with my toothbrush, you know, and so on and so forth. And, and, and there isn't life in that. And what we recognize that is that what made all of these practices work in the early church is the fact that they were infused with the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit had just rested, come and rested with them and empowered them to actually engage appropriately in these activities. And so the way we need to start this morning is by asking God to be with us, the presence of His Spirit, because we can't understand His Word appropriately. Last week we talked about being devoted to the Word of God and finding it as our foundation, our reality. And, uh, but we can't see that reality unless the Spirit guides us into the truth. And in the same way, we can't actually live out appropriate fellowship unless the Spirit empowers us by the fruit of His Spirit to live appropriately. So join me in prayer as we ask God for that. God, uh, you say that the fruit of your Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. And all those words are relationship words. This stuff only works if you're the one doing it. We have anger issues. We have insecurities. We have struggles. We have selfishness. We have sin, to, to be clear, <laughs> to be simple about it. And, it. and it keeps us from loving well. And ever since Adam and Eve, you know, uh, 
decided to depart from your way, instantly we saw the relationships go awry because we had changed. And so God, if we're going to live out the blueprint, the design that you have for the church that you put out there in Acts chapter 2, we recognize that in order for that to work, we actually need the presence of your spirit the way they had the presence of your spirit. So Jesus, please come rest with us today. Open your word, apply it to our lives and to our hearts, and then give us the ability to walk it out in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we are in Acts chapter 2, and uh, you know, as we do, I'm going to have you stand in honor of God's word as we read our passage. Acts 2, 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. May God add his grace and his blessing to the reading of his word. You can have a seat. So, they devoted themselves first to the Word of God through the Apostles' teaching. And this week, we focus on the fact that they devoted themselves to the fellowship. This word fellowship in the Greek is koinonia. You may have heard of the word koinonia. It's kind of growing in popularity because a lot of churches have started to name themselves koinonia or koinonia Christian fellowship or something like that. It's a popular name to name new church starts at this point. The word koinonia most accurately translates into a single English word, common. That's what koinonia means, common. The problem with us translating koinonia into the word common is that this word we use the word common as an adjective, right? We have common interests. It, basically, we use it as a synonym for uh, similar or the same. Common means similar or the same. But the problem is, is that in this passage, uh, th that doesn't match up. We usually actually use the word fellowship. If we do use the word fellowship, if you grew up in church, you probably know the word fellowship. If you were outside a church, you're like, I don't really even know what that word's all about, other than it might be something that someone gets when they're going for their doctorate or something. You know, at school, they get a fellowship. But, uh, but what, is it, what does this mean? We typically, if you grew up in the church, fellowshipping was a verb, something we do. We fellowship with one another. But in this passage, this is actually a noun. Fellowship is a noun. It is something itself. And it translates as common, but we use common as an adjective. So what is common and a noun? You know, how, do you, how can you use common as a noun? What it means, you know how we use that word devoted, and it's that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, breaking bread and prayer. We said devoted is different than just having an interest for something, a desire for something, or disciplines about something. Devoted is being wholeheartedly given over to a single course of action. This is who I am now. This is what I'm about. And this word, fellowship, dovetails really nicely with that because what it's saying is, is we're not just the same in our interests. We're not just the same in our disciplines and what we do. At our core, our identity is we are common. This isn't we do something common or we have something in common. It's that we are common. The very identity, they, they devoted themselves to the common. 
And what's more is, is not only is this talking about individual identities, us having the same identity, so it's not just that you have now found your identity in Christ and I have now found my identity in Christ. It goes even deeper than that because if you look before the word common there, if you're reading an NIV, you'll see there's a word the right before it. That's an article. In the original, there's a word te, which can be translated as the or as a, some sort of article. It's really important to see that. Some of the translations you might have don't actually have that article because it's really confusing trying to figure out how to translate it. But it's really important to see that article ahead of it because is there a difference between saying that we are church or we are a church? It says something different, doesn't it? And so if we have common identity or if we have a common identity, it's different. Let me explain. You know, at Parker Ford, we uh, describing ourselves, there's uh, Parker Ford Church, our, the initials of Parker Ford Church are PFC, and we have said Parker Ford Church, PFC stands for People Following Christ. Um, and we, for a while, just called it People Following Christ. But then we started to realize we are, we're not just people following Christ, we're, we're a people following Christ, or we're supposed to be. And we were reading First Peter where it says, we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And we realized that every descriptor of the community had this article before it, this little letter, one letter word, a. Uh, and it changes the whole game. Because if we are people of God, that means that we have a common identity. You are a person of God. I am a person of God. And we may be journeying together. But if we are a people of God, that changes the whole game, doesn't it? Because that actually means that my identity is not just found personally, that my identity is found in the group. My, that we're actually a team. We're a family. And my identity with Christ isn't found just individually and just personally, that there's actually a corporate identity here that I am a part of. And that's why it says, it doesn't just say that they fellowshiped as a verb. It says they devoted themselves to the fellowship. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. There's a group, there's an entity in which they're choosing to engage and support and be a part of. There's something beyond just them and God. There's this other thing, okay? And if we're actually going to be a part of that, and if we're going to live out the blueprint and see that happen in us, when we said we now at Parker Ford Church, we're no longer going to call ourselves just Parker Ford Church people following Christ. We're going to say that we are a people following Christ. And so we started saying that in the tagline about Parker Ford. We're a people following Christ. And that's not because we actually were a people following Christ. It's because we thought we should be. You know, in many ways, we have all sorts of places where we still need to grow in a common identity and grow as a community. But we, we didn't want to settle with saying, it's okay for us to each be people following Christ. We have to learn to be a people together following Christ. And, and we need to learn that. And if we're going to get there, there's two things that need to happen. First of all, our mindsets have to continue to see ourselves not just isolated, but we need to understand God's plan for our lives as far as being corporate you know, being connected to each other. And so we have to have a mindset shift. We also need the power of the Holy Spirit to help us live within that, which is why we prayed earlier for the Spirit to be present. Now, the things that we need to, we need to focus on in our minds in order to understand appropriately what it means to have a corporate relationship with God is threefold that I, that I can figure out. There's three things we have, we have to look at. What is, what is the church? We need to understand church appropriately. We need to understand resources and how a team uses resources together. 
And we also need to figure out how to do relationships. So the rest, the remainder of this sermon is actually a three-point sermon. And if you don't know, that makes it a proper sermon if there's three points. And I have never been good at preaching a proper sermon. As a matter of fact, when I was in Bible college, struggled to get through my preaching class because there's a, a way you're supposed to do this thing, okay? And I didn't know how to do that. I, I just like to talk a lot, you know? Um, and so, like, I, I, yeah, a proper preaching wasn't my forte, but I hope it's working for you because it's, I, I don't do, um, you know, the three-point sermons very often, but you're going to get your first proper sermon out of me today. Um, the three, point, uh, three points that we need to be looking at with regard to community. Uh, first of all, we need to have our minds focused on God's picture of what the church actually is. How does God view the church? We need an appropriate understanding of church. We need to have a theology of church that understands what the scriptures say Jesus sees as the church. You know, uh, last, last week we talked about Ephesians chapter 5 a little bit. And we said that Christ washes his bride through the water of the word and presents her to himself spotless, without uh, wrinkle or blemish, but holy and blameless. We said he did that not for his own joy, just so that he could be like, wow, my bride's really beautiful, but he did it so that we could have validation, right? So that we could feel the value of God as we are presented to the bridegroom and found to be desirable. It gives a sense of value. But the question, the way that applies to us this week is, is in this question, that bride, that bride of Christ, who is the bride? What is the bride? The church. So if I were to ask you today, personally, if I were to single one of you out and say, are you the bride of Christ? What would be the appropriate answer to that question? Well, it's a little bit tricky. I mean, like, Try not to think about this too hard, (laughs) but if I took my thumb off and I put it here on the table, you know, and you asked my thumb, are you Tim, you know? Well, I don't know, that's kind of a tricky question. Right now, maybe not, because I'm not connected to him, you know? But if I put my, of course, my thumb doesn't have an identity of its own. I'm the only identity there. Tim is the only identity. The thumb in and of itself isn't Tim, but once it's connected, it is part of an identity. It is Tim. And we each are technically the bride of Christ only because we are attached to the body, to the greater whole. So you see, when Jesus sees the bride, it's not just that he's seeing each one of us. He is seeing one whole community, the bride. In the apocalyptic pictures of the church, we see a city. He talks about a city. The church is the new Jerusalem. He sees a city. He sees a bride in Ephesians. He sees a body, one single body, the body of Christ. He's the central nervous system, all held together, ligaments and joints and all of that, holding the body together. But there's only one body, there's only one bride, and there's only one nation, and it's the church. And we are either a part of the church or we're not. We either have an identity in Christ or we don't. And that is intrinsically tied, whether we like it or not, to the corporate whole. And we have a tendency to think of our relationship with God only in personal terms. And we think that my relationship with God is about me. And I come to church in order to get juiced up and fed so I can go and have an identity and relationship with God. And there is truth to that idea. However, if that is the extent of it, we have radically missed the truth of the gospel and God's theology, God's picture of what the church actually is. I want you to look at me with, look at me, look with me at 
uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And uh, you may know this passage. This is Paul talking to to the church in Corinth. And in verse 24, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that I, when I, after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. You hear what Paul's saying? He's bringing his body into submission and he's making it a lean, mean machine. And the reason is because he's like, we have to understand that in a race, only one wins. In a fight, only one wins. And there's only one winner. So here I am and I'm going to go all out for it. I'm going to run as if I'm going to win. So here's the question. Who is Paul running against? Who is he fighting against? Is this a picture of like when we get to the end, we get up into heaven, okay, and, and there's this one crown, you know, and it's the, it's the gold medal of the crowns, you know, and when I get there, one of us, somebody who was a part of the church is going to get this crown, and so I'm in competition with all of you in order for, I'm going I'm to beat all of you to get the crown. I, you know, all you suckers are left behind, I'm going to win, you know, and that's our perspective about church. Is that what Paul's actually getting at here? If we look at the context, you realize in verse 19, Paul says, Though I am free and I belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. If you look down in verse 22, he says this, I have become all things to all men so that by all means I might save some. You hear what Paul's saying? I have given up my life for the betterment of, of the body of Christ. I have given up my life. I have become all things to all people so that by any means someone might come to Christ. He's all about doing everything he can to bring others along. And why? Because look again at verse 25. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will last. But we, you hear that? But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. He beats his body into submission, but he says, we get the crown that lasts forever. There is only one who wins. Who is it who wins? The bride of Christ. Who is it who wins? The body of Christ. Who is it who wins? The new Jerusalem. The church wins. There's only one who wins. The people of God win, and we are able to win the prize as we are a part of that community. And so who is Paul fighting against? He's fighting against himself because he realizes that everything inside of him wants to be selfish. Everything inside of him wants to be independent. Everything inside of him wants to live his own life. And so he's beating his body into submission so that he can serve the body and do all things to all people so that by all means someone might come to know him. You see, he gives up his life for the betterment of the body of Christ because he recognizes only one wins, only one gets the prize, and the only one who gets it is the bride of Christ. And if I'm going to be a part of that thing, then I have to go all out into church. My relationship with God and my pursuit of God is not only personal, it's also corporate. 
And we can gauge some of our spiritual maturity based on how much we are actually engaging in the community and how much we're investing into the community. And if I'm only thinking about me and my relationship with God, then I have a ways to go yet in my spiritual maturity. Whatever I chose to do last night with my life, whatever I chose to do when I woke up yesterday morning and decided what I was going to do, if I was only thinking about how this affects me spiritually, then I'm missing the boat because I'm part of a team. You've heard, may have heard, some of you have heard me tell this illustration before, but my uh, college soccer coach, he used to make us run um, like, like we were running from bears or something, you know, and for, uh, ones that could run for a long time. And so we would run and run and he would give us time limits and you have to be done the running in this period of time. And when you first show up at what they called hell week, which I don't know what hell's like necessarily, but that was difficult. And we would run. And he said, when you first show up, he's like, all right, you got to run these monsters. And I won't get into what all that is because you'll be in pain just hearing about it. He said, you have to get back in this amount of time. Okay. And so he's, he has got a stopwatch and we're all running and we're running and we're, ah, you know, we get back and we're like, what's the time? What's the time? And we realize, oh, sweet, we made it. And then you see like the goalie, you know, <gasps> and the goalie's like not used to running as much. And he finally gets across the line and everyone else had made it, but the goalie was, he didn't make it across in time. And we're like, oh man, it stinks to be Nate because he's going to be running a lot. And then coach is like, everybody line up. You didn't make it in time. And we're like, what? And he's like, you win and you lose as a team. That's your job to help him get across. I, I said, you have to make it across in time. And when I say you, I don't mean you, 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 and you. When I say you, I mean you. Okay, And when Jesus says you, he's talking to us because he's talking to his bride. And we are not each the bride. We are the bride together. We are not each the body. We are only the body together. And if you run and fight in order to win the prize and you realize at the end you only did that for yourself, then you were fighting for the wrong thing. God's not impressed with our personal dedication. We have to devote ourselves in order to get past ourselves in order to engage the community. And if it stops with me and my own personal disciplines and I'm just out here by myself, way to go superhero, but where's the bride of Christ? You know what I mean? And we have to understand that our own personal pursuit of God must engage and, and overlay with the corporate relationship with God. And if you grew up in a, uh, in a, a denomination that was kind of high church, like if you were in Roman Catholic or Episcopalian or Lutheran, you, you may have, have had this experience where, um, you know, there was a real understanding of corporate connection to God in this sense, that the church relates to God and I relate to the church. Okay, so my job is I go and I get baptized and I attend and I pay what I'm supposed to into the church. The church takes care of connecting with God. My job is to stay connected to the church. And out of those movements, what has happened is there's been a lot of resurgence where people have said, you know what, it's not just about my own, it's not just about the, the church relating to God and me relating to the church. God actually has a personal relationship for me involved in this thing. And so there's been a real resurgence over the last couple hundred years and even especially over the last 50 years of really focusing on a personal walk with God. That it's not just enough for me to play ball with church and expect the church does the relating to God and I just relate to church. We actually have to have a personal relationship with God and he calls us to walk with him. And his spirit lives with me. Not just, not just it rests on the church and then I go and you know the church is out here and I go and help out with the church. But because of that mentality and the need to teach personal um, 
relationship, if you, by the way, if you have only ever related to church and have never related personally to God and you haven't experienced the personal relationship with God, you are radically missing out on, on the beauty of your life and the intimacy with God and the profound guiding of the Holy Spirit in your life. And if you don't know what that's about, you need to come and talk to one of the elders and we'll guide you into that. Now, with the fact that we have really been pushing as a church at large, um, personal relationship with God, one of the things that's gone missing is we failed to see how much my personal walk with God and your personal walk with God interfaces with the corporate relationship with God. And we've just, uh, and this is what I hear consistently, is people go to a church and what they're expecting when they go to a church is to be fed and to have an experience that helps them live their personal relationship with God. And so church is now the thing that helps me live my personal relationship with God. That is not the biblical picture of church. The biblical picture of church is that we together are the bride of Christ. And if I just, and and when you hear, sometimes when people are moving from one church to another or whatever, it's because they're feeling they're not being fed. And I understand that mentality. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. What it means to be a church is not the juice that I need to have a personal relationship with God. What it means to be a church is to be a family, a body, a bride, a team, and we go after God together or we're not actually getting there. It has to be that we go together. Now, we just had a beautiful expression of that this morning. We had these baby dedications. And you know what the baby dedications are? I mean, in reality, what these baby dedications are is that you see the Genslers and the, and the Kingstons sitting up here, and they are making commitments. And it's really important commitments they're making. The commitments that they're making are saying, we recognize that in our family, in our personal family, we have responsibility before God. That we have to raise this family to honor, or we have to raise this child to honor him. It's, you know, in the scripture, it's not the job of the church to teach the scriptures to kids. And scriptures make it real clear that it's the, the job of the family, of the parents, to, to invest the scriptures into kids. To, to create an environment where prayer is leading us, where love is the environment, where we speak truth, where we know the word of God and it guides our family. That's the commitment that these two couples were making this morning to say, we're going to raise our, our kids in this kind of environment. But then they say, but it's not enough for us to, to do that alone. We are a part of something bigger. We are a part of something. We're a part of a community. So we're coming, holding this wonderful child. And we're saying, but this child does not belong to just us. And this whole role of raising the child, they're a part of something. And we're a part of something. And then we are asked, Josh asked us to make commitments to say that I am actually going to help in this process. And what that means is, is that when I get up in the morning and I'm deciding whether to read my Bible or not, or it's late on Friday night and I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my night, that I'm not just thinking about my own personal relationship with Christ, but I'm thinking about how this affects the Kingstons and the Genslers and whoever else in our church because we just agreed together that we're in this journey together. And that means that now I'm not just thinking about me because the only way we win is as a team. So it's not just important for me to take care of my own self. It's important for me to support the others. The picture of church, according to Christ, is we are a bride, a body, a nation, a city, a community together. Okay? And so we have to have that in our mind. That changes our mindset about two other things. First of all, it changes our mindset about resources. Okay? So... Like we said before, if my thumb has, uh, you know, 
resources. It, or let's switch to my index finger now. My index finger has a wonderful talent, a resource. It can itch, okay? And if my finger is a part of my body, now it has a job. And the job is to use that finger, use its talents to do what? To itch. To itch what? Itself? It can't even itch itself. That's amazing. That's so frustrating. It has to rely on my other index finger in order to itch it. If it itches, you know, it can't even help itself. Its whole purpose is in order to invest its resources, its talents, its time, its energy, its money into itching the other part, you know, and, and there's, a, there's a real help there, you know, and when we're a part of a body, that means that what I possess, my talents, my time, my finances, all of those things, they're not just my own. We know if we're followers of Christ that our resources are not our own. They're God's, right? We know everything belongs to God and that we're not, we don't own any of this stuff. We're stewards of it. And he gives it to us temporarily and we can use it. But when we begin to believe that we're actually part of the community, then we believe it's not only that it's God's and we're stewards of it, it's that it is the community's. And our job is to use our talents, our resources in order to invest. Remember, we don't win unless we all win. So my resources are best used by investing into others to help them move forward. This is why Paul says, I've let go of myself and become a slave to everyone in order to get them to move forward. This is what life's about for me. Life isn't about me anymore. And therefore, the resources that I possess and I steward, they're not mine. In a real way, the church budget is not what we see on that paper each year. The church budget is when you take all of what we have and you put it together. That's the church budget. Now, we don't want anybody having control over that whole church budget. And some of you were raised in environments where you felt like all the church wanted was your money and they want, you know, they tell you you got to give this and all that. And that's not what we're looking for. But you cannot look at the blueprint for the church and say, this is what fellowship is without seeing finances connected to that. I mean, you see this, right? In Acts 2, you see what's going on here in Acts 2:42. Uh, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread into prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Then listen to this in verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common. You remember that word common? Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to everyone as he had need. So how are they expressing the fellowship? How are they expressing the fact that they are the common? The way they're expressing that they are the common is that they are investing into one another. Listen, 1 John. I'm going to have you uh, look at another passage of Scripture here. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue but with actions and in truth. You know what that passage just told us? It told us to put our money where our mouth is, is what it told us. It said don't just love with your mouth, Love with actions and truth. If you see a brother in need and you don't help out financially, don't tell me that you love them because you don't. And that's what that passage just spoke to us. Listen, finance is a weird thing to talk about in church, but you have to represent the full counsel of Scripture, okay? And I preached last, last March, March 11th. I remember the date. It's the first time that I preached a message in this church about money. 
I had been here for two and a half years and I had not preached a message about money because I know how sensitive it is and I know that people don't, like, it's like the church just wants to, you know. And, and I remember saying on that day, it is a crime that I haven't talked about money yet. And I need to apologize to you. And the reason is because Jesus talks more about money than any other thing except relationships. And today, we're talking about relationships. And when Jesus talks about relationships, he talks about them most often in terms of money. Why? Because there's this timeless principle that he gives to us in the Sermon on the Mount that we have to come to terms with. And that's that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We say we love and we say we care. We want the idea of fellowship. We want the idea of community. But we have to think as a team. And we have to act as a team if we're actually going to be a team. And that means that I'm all in. And that means that if you're in need, if I got a dollar in my pocket and you're in need, that's yours. You know? And that's how we roll. That's how we do it. Now, um, in, in this moment in the church, you know, it's an incredible thing. It says that they grew in favor with all the people. You know what that means? That means that everyone was looking at them and being like, whoa, that's cool. And can you imagine watching a bunch of people who have the amount of trust and the amount of investment into each other to take their own personal resources and, and radically invest into each other? And you watch time and talents and finances just flowing back and forth with trust. You're like, Tim, that sounds a little bit like Marxism. You know, Marxism doesn't work because it doesn't have the Holy Spirit within it. But when you have the power and the trust of God behind you, and you can care for your family members, and you realize that God's the provider, you have an ability to sacrifice on behalf of each other and say, we can't actually achieve this unless we do it together. And what happened was, is those who were watching were blown away. Now, this is what I want to ask us today. We have, you remember what Jesus says the root of all evil is, right? The love of money. The love of money. And the reason that the love of money is the root of all evil is because that turns us individualistic. Like, you know, over here is love where we're sacrificing and we're giving on behalf of others and we're investing into each other. Love of money is here where I'm just, I'm looking at me. And what happens is if you want to cut off some of the evil of a community, you, you got to get to a place where we're just give like crazy. You know, and the more we give, the less of our individualism there is. And now we're invested into one another. And what happens in this moment as they're giving to one another, it changes the whole game. And you realize that they don't have a love of money. They have a love of God and a love for each other. And as they have a love for God and a love for each other, it blows the minds of those around. And as we're sitting here in America and there's the economic downturn, we realize that so much of our confidence and our pursuit has been built on the love of money. And when money went missing, our lives crumbled. So many lives crumbled in the midst of it. And our society starts freaking out and saying, what's going on? And listen, here is the moment. This is the very moment that the church should shine. This is the moment when the whole world should be looking, stepping back and looking at the church and being, no way. They actually got it right. They actually got it right. Who knew the church actually could get something right? They got it right. And they should be seeing that because they should see that when we're built on Christ and we're built on each other, the way we use resources is radically different than the world. See, in the world, in, when there's greed and materialism, what you do is you go to each garage door and you lift up each garage door and you look in and there's a carbon copy in each garage of all the same tools, right? You have the same stepladder and the same broom and the same shovel as the person next to you. 
But when you get into a kingdom mindset and we're all one family, you realize, all right, well, the snow shovel's here, you know, and what's over here is the broom, and what's over here is the ratchet set, and we're in this together, so we don't need to carbon copy all of our resources. They're shared resources. We're in this together. And all of a sudden, life gets a whole lot more efficient. And all of a sudden, there's a whole lot more resources to invest into the kingdom of God. And we should be the model of efficiency as a church because we have trust and we can build a sense of community together where we can think on a broader team level. One of the things that uh, Joan Fairheller, who comes to our first service, she had this idea at one point where she said, you know what, we should have like a bulletin board that we put up where it's like anyone who has a need, um, they pin it on the board. Or anyone who has an extra something or other, they pin it on the board. And you can, you know, it's an exchange. Uh, we talked about that. Dave Willauer um, put something together uh, that we're going to have online in the blog. It's called PFC Exchange. Um, and we're going to do that kind of thing online, okay, where it's like if you have an extra cabinet or an extra TV or you're good at doing something and you want to help serve the body, you post it on the blog here. And if you have a need, I need help with this, then you get on that thing and there's an ability to, to work together at that. You know, if that's something that interests you and you want to help kind of organize around that thing and be a part of that, then I would ask you to see Dave or myself after the service and say that's something I'm kind of interested in. You know, and, uh, and the other thing is the benevolence fund. We're having a special offering after the service about the benevolence fund. This is the picture. We have people in need. We give to them. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. If we're going to be a team, we help out those. We win together. And, and we need to invest in the benevolence fund for those who are in need. And so at the end of this service, if you want to, you'll have an opportunity to invest in the benevolence fund. So we need our perspective on what church is to change, that we are a team. We are not alone. Our pursuit of God is not alone. Secondly, we need our perspective on how we use our resources then to change, that we use them as a team. Thirdly, is that we need our perspective on relationships to change, that if we are actually going to become a team, then we actually need the relationships to function well. You know that we weren't built to be alone. You know that, right? I mean, you remember that God, each day he was creating stuff and he was saying, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then he gets to Adam and he says, it's not good. What's not good? It's not good for Adam to be alone. Well, is Adam super lonely? No, he's got a great relationship with God. It's just that he can't actually function the way he's supposed to alone. He can't be the image of God alone. It says that in in Genesis chapter 2, it says that he created them in his image, male and female, he created them. They were in his image together. There is Father, Son, and Spirit, who three and yet one, and, and together, that is the image of God, and we can only reflect that image together. Now listen, post-fall, as soon as the fall happens, and we, get, we eat the fruit we shouldn't and whatnot, instantly what happens to the relationships? You know, we hide from God, we're trying to hide from Him, we put on fig leaves in order to hide from each other, we blame each other, she did it, he did it, they did it, the team mentality went completely out the door. Now as we try to work back into a place where, where the love of Christ is here, it's here for us, there's redemption, but we're trying to walk that out. We actually need other eyes on us. We can't do it on our, on our own. We need help. We need mirrors. You know, there was a, a little girl who... Uh, she was with her mom in the kitchen, and her mom had this nice head of, uh, you know, burnet hair, uh, uh, brown hair, and, but she had this one strand of gray hair that was coming down. And the little girl kind of looks up at her, and she says, Mommy, why is, why is, your, why is that white there? And her mom's kind of frustrated, you know. 
And she's like, well, because every time you do something bad, it turns one of my hairs white. And the little girl kind of hangs her head, and she goes off, and she plays, and she comes back like five minutes later, and she said, Mom, why are all of Grandma's hairs white? <laughs> and you know, like, every now and then, you need someone else to show you the flaw in your own thinking, you know, and say, like, this doesn't make sense. You can shame me over this or whatever, but, like, let's be real here together for a minute. We are all in this thing. We all have gray hairs. We all frustrate each other. But our job is to figure out how to win together. Sometimes we can't hear ourselves. We don't even know what's coming out of our mouth. This is, you know that couple who was up in the beginning, um, who you saw the couple who she brushed his, uh, brushed the toilet with his toothbrush? They were in church one day, okay? And uh, she has a, a, a bad gastrointestinal issue. I hope this is appropriate for church. <laughs> And uh, somebody just said, stop. Just get out, dude. Um, and she's having a struggle. And she's like, oh, really uncomfortable, kind of shifting her seat. You see her write a note, and she passes the note over to her husband. And it says, I had to let a silent one go. What should I do? <laughs> you see him scribble something back and hand it, hand it back over to her. And he reads it, and it says, change the battery in your hearing aid. <laughs> sometimes we can't hear ourselves you know what i mean we don't know what's actually going on around us and we need the help from each other you know last night we had um Netzer is a leadership network that we're a part of where churches and leaders would come together and we had sitting here this painting of of uh the the story of lazarus when lazarus had just risen from the dead and it's this awesome painting where here he is and he's in all these white clothes. He's the center of the picture and he's in these white grave clothes, still wrapped up in the grave clothes. And behind him is this whole community of people. And they're all watching. And what the artist is trying to describe is the, the moment right after Lazarus was, was risen from the dead. And I want to read you just these last few verses of that, uh, that story in uh, chapter 11, verse 43 of John. It says, when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Listen to this. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. And what the artist was trying to describe in this painting was the fact that Jesus does the miraculous and he frees us and he gives us new life and he raises us from the dead and he gives us the abundant life and it's right there for us, but we're still wrapped up in all of our junk, you know? And we still have our old life wrapped around us and we're still deceived a little bit. And even though the reality has changed and we're alive and we're told that the abundant life is there for us, what we actually need in order to unpack that, in order to unravel that, in order to live in the reality of it, is we need the others to come and to take off those grave clothes and to cleanse us from the stuff that's still binding us. There is nothing else that needs to happen. Jesus already gave each of us life abundantly. There is an incredible 
incredible life that is already available to us right now. And if we're not experiencing it, it's because we're not living in the full reality of something that actually already exists. And what we need is each other to help take off those stupid grave clothes and get them off of us. We look like we're dead still because we're not believing in the depths of what it is that Christ did for us and how much he loves us. And the best friends are the ones who can look at me and say, look, you're chasing after this stuff, but it's not going to make you happy. You realize he loves you. You realize he's got an incredible bank account. He can take care of you. Don't worry about that stuff. Let go of the worry. This is why Paul tells the community that when he says, when you're looking at each other, sing to each other with songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music and melody in your heart. And what he's saying is encourage one another. Take the lies off. The best friends are the ones who can get close enough to us to see when we're believing something that's headed down the wrong path and they're just like, that's not gonna get you where you're trying to go. Jesus already got, you're already alive, man. Get those grave clothes off of you. And we need those relationships desperately. You know, my own personal spiritual journey, like if I look back and see how my life has changed, I can look back and I can say, there was this person speaking this word, there was this person in my life doing this, there was this person doing it, and all of it was Christ. All of it was about what Jesus had already done on a cross, but I couldn't come to terms with it until someone helped me understand it a little bit more. And I need that all the time. And we need that with each other. And you can't actually get there unless there's trust built, unless there's relationships. If you saw, uh, uh, remember the Titans? I don't know if you ever saw that Walt Disney movie, Remember the Titans, great movie. Denzel Washington's a football coach. There's an African-American football team and a Caucasian football team, these schools, and they get put together. They have the same football team now, and they have to figure out how to play together. And they have incredible talent on both the squads. They should have a great team, but they can't get it figured it out because they don't trust each other, and they're really suspicious of each other. And so he makes them, like, sit on the bus together with people of the opposite race, you know, of this other race. And then he's like, he makes them room together, not with the guys who they were already friends with, but they have to room with the, the other people. And he has all these questions. They have to learn about each other. And why is he doing all of this? Because he realizes that if they will begin to listen to each other and spend time with each other and eat their meals together, they will realize this, that they are common. They are fellowship. They are common. What they want is to win football games. There are a bunch of guys who want to win football games. And it doesn't matter what color your skin is or your skin. We want to win football. And if we get to the place where you seem a little more normal and you seem a little more trustworthy, then we can start to trust each other and maybe we can get down and play some ball. You know, and this is what Christ calls us to in the church, that we have the ability to accomplish as a body what it is that he wants us to do here on earth, to reveal the unity of God, the triune nature of God. He wants us to reveal that as the bride of Christ, but we can only get there when we begin to trust one another. And the only way we get there is by actually investing into the relationships intentionally. It says they met together in each other's homes and they ate together. We cannot overstate how important it is to get into each other's homes and to eat together. I have made, Jen and I have made this one of our primary disciplines since coming to this church. Man, I could ask a bunch of you, have you been to our house? And a ton of you would be able to say, yes, we've been to your house. And the reason is because the scripture, this is the blueprint for the church. If we want a sense of community, 
then you have to be able to invite people into your home and have coffee with people and eat meals with people because you can't build trust until you've spent time with each other. And you can't speak into someone's life, their blind spot, until they can trust you. And we can't function as a team and let our resources go out here and over there until we trust. And so at the core of this whole thing, it comes down to a simple, ancient, future practice of the church. Build the relationship. Invest into the fellowship. And when we do, it changes not just us. And it changes not just our pursuit of God, but it changes the world around us. Because we will find favor with the world watching. And, and what happens is, is this is that, that uh, the centripetal force of we're following God together. And as we go after God, we're all going after him, orbiting around God. And we do this together. And it provides this magnetic quality where others want in. I was talking to this, to Scott Logan about this. And he was like, I get this picture of like a cyclone, you know, that's like going like this up to God. And there's just this suction that comes from the cyclone. And as we love one another, and as we're pursuing God, people just start getting sucked into it. And they don't know anything about God. They don't know about how to interact with God, but they see that love and that relationship and they want in and they just get sucked into the vortex of this thing and get brought up into relationship with God because of the love that's happening into the community. And that's why you don't see them making a ton of evangelistic effort in this passage, but you see the Lord adding to their number daily because there's a magnetic quality to a community that actually loves each other by the power of God. And so here we are, and we're in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Philadelphia is the land of independence you know, and Philadelphia is also what we call brotherly love. And we know that we have done really, really well as a a, a greater Philadelphia area at independence. You know, we are so good at independence and we are so horrific at brotherly love. And it's time to flip it on its head and to say, we're not independent, we're interdependent. We're not codependent, but we are interdependent. And brotherly love is what we expect when the Spirit of God shows up. That we live as a team. That we work as a team. We use our resources as a team. We relate to each other like we're on the same squad, headed the same direction, and the ligaments that bind this part of the body to that part of the body are so important because what good's my forearm if it's not attached to the upper arm, you know? And what good is your own personal life if it's not attached to the fellowship? So by the grace of God, let's beg him to fill us with his spirit so that we can be devoted to his word and that it would manifest and show up in devotion to one another. Can we pray that together? Can we pray that God? And what that takes is that takes, that's a mindset shift that says, I will not just be a part of showing up and being fed and going and living my own life. This is a commitment to be a part of the community. Because if we're not a part of the community, then we're not really doing the bride of Christ thing. You know, I gotta be in. So if we're gonna pray it, we pray and we expect that if he gives us the power, that we actually follow in that and we take the discipline to go after that. Okay? I'm going to pray that for us right now.